talk about today is to learn a little bit about the, uh, the themes and the practices and the rituals that go on in a Jewish life. Um, and this is something that most of us, well, the talk is going to be a lot longer than what we're going to talk about. Uh, but a lot of the things that we're going to cover are things that we know, we're familiar with. Like we all know that there's a circumcision and we know that we heard of the bar mitzvah and we know that a little bit about the Jewish marriage ceremony. Uh, and unfortunately, most of us, I'm sure, have had encounters with death and bereavement and that element of, 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 of Jewish life and practice. So these are things that we're familiar with. And kind of like when we talked about holidays, like we didn't, we didn't tell information uh, about Jewish life that maybe perhaps we didn't know. But what we are trying to do is to maybe uh, expose the meaning uh, behind some of these ideas. Uh, and today, we're going to start uh, with, uh, well, when does life start? Um, so this is a hotly debated topic. Uh, so, uh, you know, with this... Uh, when we say the sentence, uh, life begins at, and then we can argue, is it conception, is it birth, is it when someone could start paying their own bills? I don't know. We're Jews. Life begins once you uh, get out of... Uh, once you get your PhD. Uh, yeah, either PhD, either doctor or law school. <laughs> so what's interesting is that in, in, in Jewish writings, in Jewish, in, you know, in Jewish literature, we find that life begins before conception. Thing is always a surprise. We find incredible statements in Jewish writings, Jewish teachings, that tell us some very interesting details about what happens to the child before conception, which is bizarre. Like, what is, what is the child even before conception? And also, like, what's the relevance to us? Like, why is it important for us to know what happens to a child before conception? And how does that Im- impact our lives? So what's the lesson that we could take from it? So let, let me give you guys the examples. So I have two, two sources. These are both, both from the Talmud. Uh, number one, we find like this. This is from the Talmud in Nida 16. It says like this. And the angel that is in charge of conception, the angel's name is Lila. Okay? The angel takes a drop of semen, brings it to God, and tells God, this drop, will this be someone intelligent or someone Foolish, silly, someone not, not intelligent. I don't know what's the word for someone not intelligent. I guess foolish, right? Will this child be rich, wealthy, or poor? And will this child be strong or weak? And, however, will the child be righteous or wicked? That's, that's, that's not discussed. And the Talmud concludes, Everything is in the hands of heaven, aside from fear of heaven. This is a statement. So what does this tell us? Before conception, right, we're taking this drop, and we're determining what's it going to be. Is it going to be intelligent, or, or the, the, the grade of intelligence uh, on, on wealth, and on, uh, you know, and on, what's the last one? Intelligence, wealth, and, uh, and physical, physical might. What, does this po- what lesson can we possibly uh, deduce from this? Uh, and additionally, by the way, I'll tell you guys the secret. Later on in the very same book, it asks the question, what does someone do and become wealthy? Which clearly it's indicating that there's something that you can do to become wealthy. But the previous Talmud seems to indicate that now it's all predetermined. And what's the lesson for us? Like, okay, we're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 28. And I'd like to be wealthy, maybe, right? You know, it's, well, this is America, right? You got your green card. Uh, and I'm like, if you read this, it's a, it's a little bit deflating. But I haven't got... Not yet, but, um, but it's a little deflating. You're, you're reading about 
Oh, okay. So everything that maybe I think is important, uh, I can't become any smarter. It's already predetermined. God's already said, whatever it is. Uh, wealthy or poor, it's already predetermined. It's kind of deflating. Like it's like it, it's not inspiring. So we have this seemingly pointless instruction uh, narrative, and it doesn't seem to have any value for us. Okay, I'll hold that thought for a second. Okay, let's go to the other end of the Talmud. This is from the book of Sota, two uh, a right at the beginning. By the way, Talmud starts with uh, all Talmuds start with with page number two. Very bizarre. If someone quotes the Talmud in 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 page number one, it doesn't exist. Very interesting. I don't know what the meaning behind it is. Huh? It's the cut of maybe, I don't know. But this is like a ubiquitous. Across all Talmuds, they're all printed the same way. They all look the same way on the page, and they all start from the page number two. Either way, so page 2a, so it's the very first page of the Talmud, it says as follows. 40 days before conception, so we're going to seemingly earlier. It was all pre-conception. 40 days before conception, a batkol, which is a prophecy, announces bat ploni leploni, right? This child will marry the daughter of so of so and so. Bayit ploni leploni. What's the house that this person going to live in? And sadeh plonit leploni. Which field is this person going to have? Once again, so things that are very important in our lives: who we're going to marry, what you know, what are we, you know, where we're going to live, and you know, sadeh, a field, is kind of what our livelihood is going to be. All that's very predetermined. And I would argue that you know. Perhaps we could agree that the most important decision that someone will make in their lives is who they'll marry. Is that a fear? Is that a fear? A fear argument? The most important decision, right? Would you all agree? Okay, so the, you know, arguably one of the most important decisions, right? Huh? Top three. Okay, I, I think it's maybe the most important. I think maybe there's a good argument. Either way, uh, and what is the people? What, you know, what's the biggest investment most people make? It's their house. And what do people spend the most time with in their lives? It's their jobs. It's their lives. It's their career. And all these three themes, who are you going to marry, and which house are you going to buy, and what field are you going to, you're going to have, determined before conception. Once again, it seems very deflating. It seems very bizarre. And doesn't seem to be very instructive. Like, what's the lesson that we could possibly gain? It's not like we could change it, right? No, no, none of us can dial back the clock for what happened before conception. We're trying to influence this angel whose name is Lila. What does that even mean? So what's the lesson for us? I was thinking that perhaps the Talmud is kind of illuminating for us really what life's all about. And there's a chasm, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a discrepancy between, between what we value and what God values. We are physical. Right? We are, uh, we're rooted in what we see. We live in a very physical world, and therefore we invest all our time and our efforts in physical pursuits. What happens? You know, we're all going to live, God willing, until 150 or whatever. But then we're going to die. And what happens then? Right? Well, then the physical world's over. In Judaism, we talk about this eternal life, which is more like the spiritual world. The idea of a soul, we'll talk a little bit more about the soul, what it means. But the soul is eternal. Right? Death does not extinguish a soul. There's nothing that someone could possibly do to destroy this, uh, this power that we all have within ourselves. And in macro-Jewish philosophy, we are being told that even though innately we are drawn to focus on the physical, however, what's lasting and what's really important, what's going to outlast us and our kids and, frankly, everything physical is our soul. And therefore, it makes more sense, bigger return on investment, to invest time in your soul. So the idea of becoming a better person, character, 
you could argue, I know if anyone, any of you guys read the uh, Steve Jobs book, it seems to make a good argument that the, uh, the worst characteristics kind of propelled him to his success in business. It's a good argument. I don't know if you read the book or not. You would argue that someone, you know, charity, we talk about charity a lot in Judaism, right? Charity is giving away your money. Why would someone give away their money? It's, it's insane. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense, right? Physically, like, I, I want money's good, right? It's a very valuable commodity to have in a physical world. But we're told in Judaism to give it away. Take it. Why should I give away my money? It, it doesn't make any sense. Well, because you're helping someone else. And caring for someone else, even noticing someone else, that idea is only linked to the soul. It's linked to the spiritual. And that's why we're encouraging ourselves to maybe focus less on the physical, give away a little bit of the money. It's very painful to do as well. You, know, you work hard to make, to make a paycheck, and you cut out 10% and give it to charity, give it to someone less fortunate. That's not an easy thing to do. But what that does is that's a reflection of the Jewish mission, which is to invest in eternity, to invest in the soul. But we're dropped into the world and we don't feel that innately. You ask a child, hey, child, you, know, you, got, you have two candies. Why don't you give one to your brother? Right? For a child, like, why would I want to have two candies, more pleasure? Right? One candy, a little bit less pleasure. So what do I, why would I want to help my brother? That's, that's what kids do because you know, that's the way we are innately. That's the way we start off life. And unfortunately, we grow, we, we grow up through a life and what do we care about? We care about the things that are going to pass, the things that are more trivial. Um, What house we're going to live in, how much time do we spend decorating our houses, how much time do we spend thinking about this, vacillating, debating, worrying about these things. And the Torah is telling us, from God's perspective, those things are already done and done with. Those things are predetermined. Now, of course, those are not predetermined because we find the other Talmud that says, well, what could you do to become wealthy? So clearly, there is something you can do to influence your wealth. There is something you can do to influence your intelligence. Because there's another Talmud that says that as well. But these two ideas of, uh, of, of, of the God's perspective, we find, and that can be very influential for us in our lives. So, uh, we're told, before we're even born, before we even conceived, the things that we value in our lives... So number one was how much money someone will have, how strong someone will be physically, physical might, and how intelligent, intellectual prowess. These are all the things that we as bodies value. Everything that, that you can think of that your body wants will fit into one of those three categories. Right? Either it's you know, physical, material assets, uh, or it's physical uh, prowess, or intellectual uh, achievements. Everything fits under those, those three categories. And that's what we're focused on. That's what we're driven to, 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 you know, to try to attain. That's what we spend our lives working on. And then what happens? We get old and we say, oh, God, I spent my entire life, this great opportunity, and what do I have tomorrow? What do I have after I die? What, the, the, you can't take those things with you. Even, even the mighty, even Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he's going to die, he's also going to be consumed by, by maggots. Right? But he had those great muscles. It doesn't matter. You know? And the wealthiest person, maybe they could do it. I remember there was one, this one lady who, who brought a Ferrari. She said she wanted to be buried in her Ferrari. So maybe with the exception of that woman, you really can't take much with you. <laughs> you really can't. Like, you can't take your material wealth with you. 
and you're intellectual. You know, I think there's a great example, uh, illustration of this idea. We have Albert Einstein. So time named him the man of the century, the 20th century. We know that he had great intellectual achievements uh, in a vast, in a vast uh, a variety of, of, of scientific fields, um, which is incredible. And where's his brain now? No one knows where Einstein's brain now is. Well, so when he died, some dude in Princeton took his brain and sliced it up into 150 pieces. Oh, really? And then he sent it out. He sent it out to laboratories across the country, maybe even across the world, to investigate why is his brain so potent. By the way. Huh? With no permission, of course not. Which, to me, I was thinking this is like the greatest irony. You know, someone who arguably's intellectual achievements rivaled, you know, almost anyone in the you know in recent history. And where's his brain now? It's like imbe- it's like cut up like a schnitzel, you know, and it's scattered throughout the world. To me, like this, you know, what is his brain doing? Now, what's his brain doing for him now? Absolutely nothing. Now, I'm not trying to say that Albert Einstein was a good guy. And he was a Jew who had a very strong connection, you know, to Jewish idea. He was offered to be the first president of Israel. He declined. That's true. Uh, you know, he, he would go on to, you know, die a couple of years later. But either way, I'm not trying to denigrate uh, Einstein. But to me, this is an illustration of the idea of that. No matter how fantastic your achievements are in these three areas, once you're done, once your physical body and your soul have been separated, those things are no value to you. However. The mitzvah that you do, the small investment that you do in worrying about what your soul needs, taking care of the agenda of the soul, which we don't feel drawn to. None of us feel drawn to that. Right? It's, it's not innate. If we did feel drawn to it, then everyone would just do mitzvahs. <laughs> there, would, there, there would be no, uh, there's no value, there's no meaning to doing mitzvahs if you feel drawn to it. Uh, but when we do a little bit of investing in that, you know, we, 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 we study Torah, we try to improve our character. You know, we work on our kindness. And any one of those things that are linked to the soul, right, then we are actually achieving something that's going to last. And the Torah tells us, I don't know what actually happens. I don't know what this angel means. The angel declares about the child. I have no idea what that means. I, I'm not, you know, as a licensed rabbi, I have no earthly idea what this angel, and why is he called Lila? And what, but however, what I do know is that these are things that to us as humans, as bodies, we value enormously. And we focus on it enormously. And the Torah is telling us that from God's perspective, these things are not important. They're as if before you even get started in your life, these things are already determined. It's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's predetermined and it's inconsequential, which to me, I think is, is a remarkable idea. Um, and perhaps I would make the argument that maybe that's why the Talmud told this to us. It's really teaching us a deep lesson about what our life is ultimately. Because when we think about this, and it's, un- it's a very unsettling thought. If you're, if you're unsettled by these words, then that's good. It means you're human. It's very unsettling to think that what you know, we really value a lot is inconsequential. But when you think about it, it really is. You know, a big, big, big term, you know, a big, big picture. Uh, but that's, that's an, a, you know, an incredible I- idea that I wanted to talk about, um, about what happens even before life. Uh, what do we know about the child in gestation, in utero? anything about this? When, when does a child get a soul? Who knows when, it, when does a child get the soul? So the soul, this great power that we're talking about, when does it appear? Who knows? At birth? Is that our, huh? At age 12? No, week 12. Week 12? 
for the Judaism? Huh? Imagine. But as a, as a harp? Huh? Oh, so you're saying that the souls even existed before that? Well, the Talmud says that. That's a great idea. Yeah, the idea of the souls, essentially, we say the souls are eternal. So the fact that you have a soul, the, the soul is much older than you are. But when is it put into some fact that's interesting that you mentioned that? Conception. Inception's that movie. The, with the, the movie with the dreidel is Inception. Something else. Uh, so you're 100% right. So the Talmud it records a, a, a debate or a dialogue between uh, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the Roman emperor in the year uh, 161, and Rabbi Judah the prince, right, the great rabbi who was the codifier of the Mishnah, and they had a debate about this question. When does, when, when does the soul get inserted into the body? It doesn't say when's the soul created. Like you said, the soul's already existing before. The soul is extant, you know, because the soul's eternal. It's going to outlast our body, and, and, it, and it existed before our bodies. But when does it, when does it put it in, 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 into man? And it says at, at conception, like you said. So we have, at conception, we have a soul, and... Throughout the gestation, we have this soul. What's the soul doing? What's the soul doing in, in, in utero? What function does it have? This is not a, a, a human where we have this conflict between the body and the soul. Like, kids just, they're kicking and driving the mother nuts. Making that noise. Oh, yeah. Well, how do you know that? Good job, Alexander. The study in Torah. Where's that from? You know where that's from? Yeah, so this is a common misconception that the angel teaches the child Torah. The angel makes the child forget it. This is what's going to a crazy idea we find in, in Jewish writings. The child knows the entire Torah. As the child's about to be born, an angel comes, smacks the child in the mouth, and makes the child forget the whole Torah. Now, this is the idea, this has been in, in Jewish writings for thousands of years. Yes, you never heard that? I, people say that the angel teaches the child Torah. That's what they The angel makes the child forget it. So we have these nine. The child gets a soul at conception. He's got nine months and change. In our case, it's like ten months when, uh, when my wife is pregnant. It feels like that sometimes. Um, so the child gets this, this soul, and he's studying Torah for nine months. You tell me. I don't know. I'm asking, I'm asking the question. I'm just saying what it is. This is, once again, from the Talmud. This is an ancient, ancient source. And, and remember, the Talmud, it's not, it, it's not writing fairy tales, it's writing deep lessons. It's teaching us a lot about life. And we're trying to w- work through like, the, you know, the process of, of birth to earth, or even pre-birth to earth, of Jewish life. And we find these incredible ideas that seem to be very intriguing, very compelling. And w- what does it mean the child le- learns the whole Torah? And what does it mean the angel comes and smacks him in the mouth and makes the child forget it? And additionally, if... If the child is going to forget it anyhow, if you knew for sure the child is going to forget it, why would you teach it to him in the beginning? That seems to be a good argument. Why would you teach Torah to a child if you knew for sure that at birth the child is going to forget it? What do these, these ideas even mean? So, In some inside baseball here, okay. There's another question uh, discussed in that same Talmud piece about uh, the conversation between Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. 
when does a child get a yetzerah, an evil inclination? Now, an evil inclination, I have, I, talk, I have five hours worth of material on evil inclination. Uh, but it's, it's the force that compels us to sin. It's the force that empowers our body to override our soul. It's that, uh, it's that tension of the soul on one hand and the yetzerah on the other hand that creates uh, you know, the, the, the questions that we have in life. Um, uh, the uh, the issues that we grapple with as humans when we're uh, when we have to make a decision uh, a moral decision that's a reflection of the soul on one hand right desiring one agenda and the yetzerah together with the body desiring a separate agenda the, and th- those two conflicting agendas create what we call free will free will is where someone has to kind of make choose which path you're going to take in whatever decision you're about to make. So if the child gets the if the child gets the uh, gets the uh, the soul at, at conception, when does the child get the yetzerah? A bar mitzvah? Well, that's the yetzer tov. Uh, so uh, the Talmud there concludes that at birth, and it brings a source, and the source is a verse in Genesis. You know the Talmud. If you never read it. The way it is, if it brings a lesson, an idea, a law, a thought, a philosophical, an ethical idea, it always quotes a verse in Scripture. So a verse in Genesis, or anywhere, anywhere in the 24 books of the Jewish Bible, it's in a quote of verse to, to, to uh, substantiate that idea. Uh, so it quotes a verse in Genesis, and the verse in Genesis says, which means, at the entrance, sin crouches. So therefore, at the entrance of life, the child gets the Yetzirah. Now, the other place in the time, so I know we're a little static, I know it's late here. I'll, try, I'll, I'll wrap it up a little, I'll go quickly through the textual uh, intricacies. So we have the child at birth is forgetting the entire Torah and is getting Yetzirah. The problem is, is that the verse quoted in both these places is the same verse. Thus, you have in the verse in the Talmud in Nida, the child gets the whole Torah at birth. It quotes the verse, Lefeta chatas rovets, at the entrance sin crouches. And the verse, and the Talmud in Sanhedrin, on page 91, that says the child gets the Yetzirah at birth, quotes the same verse, Lefeta chatas rovets. And we know that if you have, if you're using a verse to tell you a law or an idea or a thought or an ethical idea, you can only use one verse to one law. So the commentators ask, wait a minute. How is it possible to use one verse in Genesis, sin crouches at the entrance, for two separate ideas? Number one, that the child gets the Yetzirah at birth. And number two, the child gets the whole Torah at birth. So the commentators point out, is that essentially only one thing happens. The child at conception has a soul. The soul innately knows the whole Torah. The soul doesn't need to be taught by an angel. That's a mistake we all make. We think, no, the soul knows it innately. The soul, like you mentioned, the soul is there at Mount Sinai. The soul at Mount Sinai sucked in the Torah. Right? It's, it's there naturally. If the child has just the soul, the child knows the whole Torah. What happens? Fast forward nine months later. At birth, the child gets the Yetzirah. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's, that's the old wives' tale, that, that, that this little indentation. 
The problem is, is that if you look at an ultrasound before birth, at five months, you see that the indentation is there already. Yeah, it's a nice thought, yeah. Um, so if we have just a soul, we know the whole Torah. As the child's about to be born, the angel comes and gives them the Yetzirah, gives them that force that counteracts the soul, that force that makes us desire this world and the physical world and not even think about the big picture and the eternal world, what's going to happen after we die. That's not a question that we ask. Why? Because who cares? That, that, that's out of our realm of vision. And that is the product of the Yetzirah. And that influences our soul and suppresses our soul and muffles and muzzles and uh, mitigates and uh, just, uh, just suppresses the, 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 the influence of our soul. And then we forget the whole Torah. It's not that the Torah was deleted, God forbid. It's just that the influence of the soul is now, uh, is, is now overwhelmed by the power of our physicality. Thus, what we're essentially doing, we're piecing together the various parts of Jewish writings that talk about what happens to the child before they're born, and we learn essentially what life's all about. We learn about what this conflict, this internal conflict that all humans, all humans, if you're a human, you have this internal conflict, this good and evil, this free will arena where you have to choose your allegiances. Are you going to be with the, with the, with the soul? Are you going to be with the eternal? Or are you going to be with your body? And, those, and that is a reflection of the physiological makeup of humans. We are a mix, an uh, uneasy marriage between a body and a soul, between uh, the, you know, the forces of the eternal and the forces of the physical. What happened, what's a body? You, know, you, could, you could, if you were to just take the body apart and just separate it by the various, uh, the various uh, molecules that compose a body, you could buy it for like $5 at, C- at CVS. If you were just to take, you know, just all the atoms, uh, or, you know, we're 70% water, we're just a few gallons of water, you know, and if you're just to, uh, to, 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 to uh, distill the bones to what they are, it's nothing. If you drop a body in the ground, and you bury it, and you want to exhume, exhume a body after a few years, what do you find? You find nothing. It's earth. It's nothing. But we value it so much. And that conflict is what makes life meaningful. If we didn't have that conflict, if we, all of us, were just thinking about our soul, well, then none of us would have any urge or any inclination or any desire to do anything besides study Torah all day. All you would want to do, 18 hours a day, study Torah. That's what, that's what you would want. Because that's the only thing that you would have that you would accord any value to. You, you can't imagine, right? This, like, what? I can't imagine. Oh, there are tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem that talk to a few No, but, uh, but if you could isolate the power of your soul, that's exactly what your soul would want. Now, it's not like that. Why? Because you have a body and you have the answer around. You got that smack really hard in your mouth, Right? And, and therefore, the soul is there, but it's overwhelmed. And if we were to say, if we were to say in one sentence, in one sentence, what is man's mission on planet Earth, according to Jewish philosophy? What are we here for? I would say it is to restore the state of my makeup or our makeup 
to the way it was before we got smacked in the mouth. Thus, that the soul is the only power that has any influence. We totally neutralized the influence of our body of the Yetzirah. We defeated it, and now we revert back to the status of, of the child in utero, even if you ever heard this term of Adam pre-sin, if you ever heard that term, Adam before the sin. That is a major, major concept in Jewish philosophy. What did Adam look like before the sin? And what changed after the sin? And whatever we mentioned, the original sin, everyone thinks we're Christians. You know, you know that's the other man. But it's in the Torah, right? It, this is, you know, um, this is a very significant. What did Adam look like before the sin? He did not have a Yetzirah. He looked like the, the way every child looks like in utero. All he had was the power of the soul. He had influences that were external, like the serpent, like the, the snake. That's the external influence. But internally, his only, his only uh, 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 internal influence that he had was that of his soul. Our goal, the perfect man, what does he look like? He looks like the child in utero. That the only thing that dominates his, his perspective, his consciousness, is his soul. The influence of the Yetzirah is totally uh, neutralized. I could talk about this for so long. I don't want to bother you guys down here with uh, interesting, relevant information, but Moses. Right? We know Moses. <coughs> Moses wore a mask. Everyone knows that? In the movie, they didn't put the mask on. Uh, if you look at... Huh? If you... Oh, the Batman. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's right, because Christian Bale played Moses. Oh, nice. He just got, they, they swapped the, oh, that's great. They, they just swapped the props. His costume, the co- they just have to swap the costume. Either way, if you look at Exodus, the second book of the Torah, it talks about Moses, and he, Karan or Panav, his face was so bright that he had to wear a mask. You know that the uh, Talmud says that Pnei Moshe ke Pnei Chama, the face of Moses was the face of the sun. Jewish people couldn't look at Moses because he looked like the sun. You try to look at the sun, it doesn't work. Try to look at the sun, it doesn't work. You ever try that? Ever try to do the sun stare? Yeah, you ruin your eyes, right? It's because it's beyond. Moses' face was like the sun. He had to wear a mask the entire time. Moses was the one man in history that had managed to actually do this completely to totally neutralize the power of his body, of his physical, of his yetzerah, and to be totally dominated by the influence of his, of, of his soul. It's shown forth, and when a soul, when, when, if you were to actually try to see a soul, you wouldn't be able to look at it, because it's from a different world. It's, 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 not, it's not supposed to have any interface with our physical uh, uh, senses. It's, it's not physical. It, it, like I said, it's eternal. It's, not, it's something from the spiritual realms that is put into this physical world. But it's supposed to be suppressed there, and you, the Jews couldn't look at him to wear a mask. Uh, and there's many sources to talk about what the sun is and how the sun is a uh, uh, one of the three things that are that are a measure of the eternal world. In this world, one of the three things is the sun. Why? Because you can't look at it. You know? And the soul is like that as well. The soul is this eternal little, little piece of, of heaven that's put into our heart. And, you know, and, and our job is to uncover that because it's covered by lots and lots of layers of schmutz as well as that smack that we got from the angel. Uh, so this kind of, like, these ideas, that if you just read them um, disjointedly, if you just read them, oh, we have a child studying Torah and the angel, like, what does these things even mean? 
But when you piece it all together, you find a worldview that is, is universal vision of, of what it's all about. You know, when we talk about Torah, what's Torah? Torah is the tool that we use to uncover the power of our soul. That's, what, that's simple, simple as that. Right? Go back to the big picture. What's our mission? Our mission is to try to get back to that state. How do we do that? By neutralizing the Yitzhara. And the Torah tells us, give charity. Why would a human want to give charity? Does it make any sense? You're, you're having less money. Why would you give away your money? Does it make any sense? It's like pouring money down the drain. Well, no, because doing that, you're, you know, you're empowering your soul and you're weakening your Yitzhara. The Torah has lots of restrictions on, on what you can eat and who you can sleep with, the way you can do in Shabbat, all these restrictions. They are small little chains in the armor that we create, you know, links between us and our soul, and also, together with that, mitigating the power of our Yetzirah. Simple. Thus achieving the end goal. So if someone tells you, you know what, Rabbi, I don't believe God really cares about what, what, you know, if, I, you know, if I eat milk and meat together. Doesn't make any sense. That's an argument that I've, I've heard countless times. It doesn't make sense that creative heaven and earth and all the cosmos and all the uh, hundreds of septillions of stars, that's what he cares about. My diet. And that's a good argument. I'm not going to contend the argument. However, let's look at it from our, our perspective. God wants us to achieve greatness. God wants us to achieve the ultimate pleasure. We do that by tapping into a much higher realm of pleasure that's eternal, that lasts forever. It's the, it's the high that never goes away. There's, there's no, you know, there's no after effects. There's no letdown. That's what God wants from us. However, there's a process that, how do you, how do you go about doing that? You have to work hard to suppress this layer that is covering it all up. It's like you have to unwrap the packaging. But the packaging is so beautiful. Who wants to unwrap it? But what's, in, what's inside is much more valuable. Yes, and pulling off the package could be painful sometimes. It's hard. It's, you know, it's like when you get something from Amazon. It's like it's frustration-free packaging. You know, I, I, I bought like a, um, I bought a, uh, an automatic, uh, like a brawn toothbrush. Goodness, it's impossible to open it. But what you want inside there. I think it's the same way. Like, we're opening up our, our, our hearts. That's what we're doing. And yes, it's painful sometimes. It's not easy. And our hearts is much harder. It's much more frustration. Frustration packaging. That's what we're doing. We're uncovering, you know, the main event. And unfortunately, some, too many of us are, are, are stuck in what, from God's perspective and from our soul's perspective, those things are predetermined. Those things are already, aren't even discussed after 40 days before conception. So these, you know, I think are, are, are some remarkable days how we could build an entire uh, ecosystem, if you will, of, of, of Jewish philosophy out of just what the Torah tells us of what happened before birth. Well, what happens at birth? But again, what's the first mitzvah the child does? I'm, 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 I'll stop here. I have a lot to say on what happens after someone dies as well. It's a whole class. That's the most. People are fascinated by what is. Huh? Booyah. Brit. That's right. The first mitzvah is the Brit, uh, the circumcision. I'm sorry? For the boys. Okay. The first. That's right. That's right. So. 
before we get there, sorry, I have one more cool thing I want to share with you guys. Uh, Talmud tells another of the crazy things that happened before, before, as the child's about to be born, it says that they make him swear. There's an oath that every one of us took before we can remember. There's an oath, and I'll read you what the oath says. Be righteous and don't be wicked. That's how it starts. And everyone has to swear this, all of us. And even if the entire world tells you that you're righteous, in your mind, view yourself as being wicked. You have room to improve. Okay? You should know that the Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, and your soul is pure. If you guard it in its purity, fantastic. And if not, I'm going to take it away from you. Thus is the nature of the oath that everyone takes before, right as you're about to be born. I'll, I'll say it again. Be righteous. Don't be wicked. Even if you think you're righteous, even if everyone tells you, oh, you're a righteous guy, right? Even if everyone tells you that, you still have room to improve. You should know that the Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, your soul is pure. Guard it in its purity, maintain its purity, and then great. And if not, I'm going to take it away from you. What's this essentially telling us? What are the lessons that we could derive from this? What can we glean from this very peculiar sounding oath that we all take? That, that's right. That's right. And be it sadiq. You know, that would say, do what's right. Be righteous. You know? And that maybe dovetails real nicely with what we spoke about earlier. Don't be wicked. Fantastic. You should know that your soul is pure. What's it telling you? It's pure. It's pure like, like the Almighty, like the angels. What does that even mean? What's it telling us? If your soul is pure, what do you... What happens... You, don't make it dirty. You don't need, you don't need to accomplish anything, essentially. Your, your, your soul is there. You just have to uncover it. Right? You have to make sure that the, that the Yetzirah is not going to influence it. Thus, you have to chip away at the, at the effect, at the vise that the Yetzirah Hara has on your soul. But to me, this is refreshing. To me, like, this kind of, like we said, this, this goes very nicely to what we mentioned earlier. All we need to do is to uncover what is already there. Our soul does not need to be purified. It's pure already. It's pure like, like the Almighty God himself. It's pure like the angels. It's pure. Our job is one of conservation. Well, how do you conserve a soul? By making sure that the Yetzirah, the effects, uh, the power, the influence of the physical does not schmutzify it, does not sully it, does not uh, 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 dampen it, does not weaken it. Thus, you uncover the power of the soul. <coughs> I want to just finish. I know I'm, I'm, we have four minutes left. I'll try, I'll try to do this really quickly. So circumcision, the first mitzvah we got. Uh, and in, today, you know, a lot of people today, this is not a new thing. Uh, a lot of people say that this is mutilation. They want to, in Germany, there was, the, right? It's, it's, it's mutilation. You're, you're taking a, uh, a helpless baby and you're cutting off an organ, or not really an organ, but cutting off part of their, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah. And the question is, you know, it sounds maybe barbaric. We know that this is the one mitzvah that the Jewish people have been persecuted over more than any other mitzvah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. Because it, it, it's... it's but it's also dropping as well. Either way, uh, Antiochus, okay, the second century before the Common Era, he said, this is the, uh, this is the Assyrian Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks, right? 
They said, if you give a child circumcision, we're going to execute you. And uh, circumcision was banned on pain of death during Hadrian's, in the second century after the, after their, of the Common Era. And we know that even in this past hundred years in Soviet Russia, circumcision was banned. We, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, Russians, Russian Jews that come to Israel and they're in their 50s or 60s and they don't have circumcision. And from what I've heard, it's somewhat of a uh, messier process uh, once the child is that advanced. But this is the first mitzvah that we have, the first mitzvah Abraham has, the first mitzvah that the child has. And it seems... Abraham was quite old, exactly. Uh, but it seems to be like a, a, a mitzvah that doesn't, you know, what's the meaning behind it? And how, 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 why is it so significant that it has to be the first mitzvah the child does? And, you know, obviously it's the first mitzvah of the Torah that we find that was given to, to Abraham. Uh, it's the first mitzvah the child does. It clearly has some significance. I think we know it's a mitzvah that, that the, the Gentiles seem to really dislike. It seems to be a mitzvah that is identified with being Jews, Jewish. And even Jews that are very distant from Judaism, they still circumcise the kids. So there's something very special about it, but what is it? What's the meaning behind it? So I want to share with you guys. Uh, I found five different reasons, five different reasons why we circumcise our children. Okay. And then we'll see how, for what? For this game, yeah. Uh, and we'll see how these reasons perhaps really are, once again, another model for Jewish life at large, and Jewish purpose, and Jewish mission, and the Jewish mission that began with Abraham 3,800 years ago, that continues today, the idea of tikkun olam, how that's fulfilled in circumstances. Let's start with number one. Number one, we're told that we're not perfect. The child's born, and the child looks perfect. She's got ten fingers, and ten toes, and everything works fine, and, but the child's not perfect. And where are they not perfect? They're not perfect in their body. Because the body has the Yetzirah. The body is convincing us that what is here and now and what we can encounter with our senses is all that matters. And that's not perfect. Thus, we demonstrate that we need to change. We need to fix it. It's, we're not, our body's not perfect. Our soul's perfect. Our body's not. And the world at large is not perfect. The idea of to fix the world. The world's broken. Our body's broken as well. And they're both broken in the same way. Our body's broken because we don't see God, we don't see the eternal. The world's broken because the world doesn't see God, the world doesn't see the eternal. It's essentially the same thing. Thus, we show, we demonstrate that the, the child's lifelong mission is going to be to fix him, his, himself and to fix the world at, world at large. Idea number one. Idea number two. The location of this mitzvah is, is at the epicenter of of the challenge that uh, at least men have uh, in their lives. Uh, we know that nothing, uh, nothing derails uh, men more than, 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 uh, uh, than uh, sexual proclivities. Uh, thus, it's put in a very specific place at kind of the, the epicenter uh, of, of this challenge that the, that, 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 that the person is going to have. And there it's a sign where someone is making this bond with God at this most volatile place to kind of remind himself, you know, this is an area that uh, you have to make sure that you don't get totally uh, uh, swamped by. That's the Ramban, Nachmanides, uh, in, in, in Genesis. Uh, number three, we find King David. There's a great narrative about King David. You can tell him in Menachos, I think it's 43 or 44. 
And it says King David was in a bathhouse, and he got very depressed. Why? Because he says, I have no mitzvahs. The bathhouse, there's no mitzvahs in a bathhouse. By every Jewish door, there's mitzvahs, not by the bathhouse. He's not wearing his tefillin. You know, he's, he's not wearing his tzitzis. He's not studying Torah. He's like, I'm devoid of mitzvahs. And then it says, he looked at his brit milah, at his circumcision, and he was happy. This is a mitzvah that's always with you. It's like branded into every Jew is this mitzvah. Thus, the, the, the other idea is the idea of confidence. You know, it's, it's always with us. And we have to remember God at all times. And it's a mitzvah that accompanies us at every, every stage of our life. Number four. If you know, if you notice, uh, I don't want to get too detailed into the anatomy, but we're all adults here, right? Uh, what, <laughs> Josh? Um, the, Uh, so, we, uh, the, the Brit Milah ceremony is essentially two parts. There's the removal of the foreskin, and then the skin is pulled down, and it exposes uh, uh, what's called in, in, in Jewish writing the crown. That's right. Or the atara, really. Atara. Um, the idea being, and this is an idea that's very, very widespread in Jewish writing, the idea of our mission in life is to bring out the crown of God. It's to expose God's glory in ourselves. When we are exposed our soul, we're exposed in the spiritual. And we're bringing God to the world. And remember, God and our soul were compared. They're both pure. Right? If we expose our soul, by dint of that, we expose, we expose God. We bring the crown of God to the world. Yeah? To ourselves and to the world. Thus, this mitzvah demonstrates really what mitzvah is at large are supposed to do. Uh, and lastly, it's the brand of a Jew. And this is Abraham's mitzvah. Abraham got this whole mission started. Abraham is the father of our ideology. Abraham was the first one to start this process of tikkun olam. We talked about the 2,000 years of chaos last time. Right? Abraham was the one who started the process of reversing the chaos. You didn't hear the class, sorry. It's a, it's a whole class on, 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 on Jewish mission at large, tikkun olam. But Abraham was the one who introduced this idea. We're continuing the Abrahamic mission. And this was the mitzvah given to, given to Abraham. And in fact, we find two insanely striking uh, uh, teachings, both from the Talmud. Both of them very similar. Uh, it says that Abraham sits at the doorstep of Gehenna. Gehenna, we'll get to that more of what happens after someone dies. Uh, but Abraham is sitting there at the doorstep, at the entrance, and he does not let anyone that has a circumcision come in. In another place, it adds as follows. It says, if someone sins so horrifically that they need to be cleansed, they have to take a foreskin that was from a baby that died before they were born. They got to slap it onto that guy and let him in. Very bizarre, right? But what it's essentially telling us is that this idea of a brit milah is something which is continuation of, God, of God's relationship with Abraham. Thus, Abraham is Abraham's mitzvah. Abraham started this process of, of fixing the world. We continue that with, with as demonstrated with, with our mitzvah. And once we're part of Abraham's fraternity, well, then he sticks up for us. So these are the five ideas that we found. So I want to just wrap them all together, and we'll, this we will conclude. I'm sorry if I'm taking you over time. I apologize. Um, I think that essentially these five reasons that we mentioned, these, this is all that we talked about till now. Right? The idea of 
We're not perfect. We're here to perfect the world. We're here to perfect ourselves. We're here to expose our soul. The world is broken, right? The child shows that as well. The kid's not perfect. We're not born perfect. We have to fix it, right? How do we fix it? How do you uncover the power of your soul? Well, you have to mitigate the effect of the body of the Yetzirah that's covering it. <laughs> Thus, the idea of the, of the Brit Milah being at the epicenter of the power of the, of the Yetzirah. And this idea is so important, it has to be with us at all times. Right? You can never shed this idea. Because this, this is the idea of core Judaism. This is our mission. We could, this, is our, this is our life. This is our mission. You cannot take off your tzitzis and then say, forget about it. This is so important. It's got to be with us at all times. And by doing that, we reveal the crown. A, in our soul, and B, in the entire world. Right? By, uh, by uh, 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 fulfilling this mission, right, we're part of Abraham's team. Thus, it's Abraham's mitzvah. We're part of this big group, this fraternity, that started with Abraham and is going to continue and hopefully uh, 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 be completed with, with Mashiach, like we mentioned last time. Thus, the, 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 the first mitzvah that happens to a child is, you know, is, is eight days old, we're already inserting them into this whole huge picture of, of what it means to be a Jew and, uh, and, and what, what the deeper meanings are and how you go about uh, fulfilling that. Uh, so thus, uh, you know, yes, we all know that we do bring me a lot to every kid with eight, eight days old. We all know that. Uh, but hopefully today we see a little bit about why we do that and the meaning behind that process and how even what we find about the child before the child's even born all that is kind of teaching us a lot about this, the, you know, this framework, uh, uh, the system of what it means to be a Jew and how we go about doing that, guys. Thanks a lot. I'm sorry for going over time. Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, but uh, as you know, an eight eight day old child already, you know, is oh, what does the, the word? What does the number eight mean? Huh? Good question. You want to stay here for another hour? <laughs> No, but eight eight symbolizes Lamalamanateva. It's more than one week. There's a lot of there's a lot of things about that. Good question. Guys, thank you all for coming. Next week is the final